Our scripture reading this evening is Revelation chapter 20, and we will read um, the first 10 verses. First 10 verses of Revelation 20, and our text is actually just the first three verses. Let us hear God's word. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast nor its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Or their hands. They came to, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. So different interpretations of the first few verses of Revelation chapter 20 are at the center of significantly different interpretations of the biblical teaching about what will happen in the world and history leading to the end of time. These different interpretations are very much influenced by how literally one interprets the symbolism of this passage and the book of Revelation, as well as other uh, symbolic passages in Scripture. The main division is between those who believe that the uh, the, the book of Revelation and other parts of Scripture that deal with the end times must be interpreted as literally as possible, and those who believe that this type of literature in Scripture is intended to be interpreted symbolically. The Reformed tradition has always interpreted Revelation and similar literature in Scripture symbolically, but a large portion of the rest of the evangelical church interprets it as literally as is possible. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this, but I thought that I should at least give a quick summary of the main views, just for interest's sake, and 
perhaps to help you play some of the language that you might hear from, from Christians in other traditions. The different interpretations of Revelation 1 through 3 have to do with how the thousand years in this passage are understood. The passage teaches that Satan is bound for a thousand years so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And the question is, when does that binding happen? And what is the result on earth of Satan being bound for that time? So many evangelicals believe that the thousand years refers to a literal thousand years on earth, and that what is described there happens after Christ's second coming, so that Christ is physically on earth during that thousand-year period, and that it is a time of great blessing and prosperity because Satan is bound. The view gets rather complicated because it teaches that after the thousand years, Satan is unbound, and then the great tribulation happens, and then after that, the final judgment. And among those who, who teach that view, there's considerable <clears throat> variation in the details, and you need charts to be able to see how all the different views fit together. These people are called premillennialists because they teach that Christ returns bodily before or pre the thousand years of Revelation 20. It is believed that Christ will return pre the millennium or the thousand years. Then there are the post-millennialists. Many of the Puritans were post-millennialists. So was R.C. Sproul. And some, but not all, of the leaders associated with uh, Ligonier Ministries. These are generally Reformed people. I don't think there are too many of them anymore. They certainly do still exist. Postmillennialists believe that the thousand years of Revelation 20 is not a literal thousand years, but a long uh, period of time before the end of the world, during which most of the world will be saved. <clears throat> and then after that time, Christ will return. So the post in post-millennialism is that Christ returns after the thousand years of Revelation 20. And post-mills tend to think that the period during this period, many of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel will be literally fulfilled, or fulfilled in some sense, and that uh, the Jews as a nation will turn to Christ. A majority of Reformed thinkers and a large number of evangelical Scholars are amillennialists, although very few people like that term. Pretty much everybody uses it. And that's the approach that I've been taking in my teaching all the way along, but also from the book of Revelation and about the, the end times in general. And this approach recognizes the symbolic nature of much of the biblical teaching concerning the end times and interprets it accordingly. It's clear to most biblical scholars that the dramatic symbolism of the book of Revelation was never intended to be taken literally. And if you take something that was intended to be taken symbolically and you take it literally, you end up with some very, very strange conclusions. 
Anyway, our tradition tends to be our mill in its interpretation of the biblical teaching concerning the end time. And the term our mill simply means no literal millennium. It's not the best term, again, but it is the one that is mostly used, and so I will use it. The Amil interpretation of this section of Revelation 20 is that the, the thousand years during which Satan is bound, that that's a symbolic number which stands for almost the entire period between the first and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a short period of time after the end of the millennium and before the return of Christ when when Satan is unbound for a short time. And so what is described in Revelation 21 through 3a began when Jesus was on earth, died and rose again, and it will end shortly before the end of the world when Satan will be released for a little time. So here again, these first three verses of Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he could not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So these verses describe Satan being bound by an angel coming from heaven. He is thrown into the bottomless pit. He is shut up in it and sealed is sealed. He is bound this way for a thousand years and the result of his being bound is that he might not deceive the nations any longer. <clears throat> According to the Amil interpretation, that represents the present time, and it has been the reality since the time of Christ, and it will be the reality until just before the return of Christ when Satan will be released for a little time. And so the point for us is that Satan has been bound, as this passage describes, since Christ won the victory over him during his earthly mission, and he has been bound in that way ever since, and he will remain bound in that way until right before the second coming of Christ. Now, the immediate question that this raises is that it does not really look like Satan is bound right now. He seems to be quite active. He is, in fact, quite successful in turning the world against God and encouraging wickedness in many parts of the world, including the West. He seems to be winning. Certain, Satan is certainly active in our world today, and on the face of it, it is hard to imagine that he is bound, seeing how much wickedness there is in this world. You would think that if Satan were bound, the world would be a much better place than it is. Now, one very important biblical perspective as we think through this matter is that spiritual reality is often the opposite of what it appears to be. Spiritual reality is often the opposite 
of what it appears to be. And the most fundamental example of that is the cross itself. The cross seemed to be a defeat, but it was the victory of all victories in the warfare between God and Satan. And the cross is paradigmatic in the sense that the pattern of seeming defeat, truly being victory, is very common in God's way of accomplishing his purposes and bringing his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31 is very important for this point. In that passage, <clears throat> Paul says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Later on in the same passage, Paul writes, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The point is that God works this way on purpose. God delights in bringing victories through what seem to be defeats, just as he did on the cross. And if we apply that, basic principle to Revelation 21 through 3, we can expect that Satan being bound will not look exactly like we expect it to. The reality is that Satan is bound. It doesn't look like Satan is bound, but in the light of the cross, we want to take into account God's habit of bringing about victories through what seem to be defeats. In God's way of doing things, the truth is often opposite of what it appears to be on the surface. And the reality is that the church has always proclaimed victory in situations that did not look very victorious. And that principle is found throughout the book of Revelation as well. In the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, each time promises are made to those who conquer. But the conquering is not success by any earthly standard, but it is being faithful, even if that faithfulness means persecution, and even if that faithfulness means dying for one's faith. That is conquering. In the book of Revelation, those who die for faith in Jesus have been victorious in a way that is analogous to the victory that Jesus won when he died on the cross. The point is then that in the Bible, what looks like winning is often losing, and what looks like losing is often winning. And so when we think of the fact that Revelation 21 through 3 says that Satan is bound at the present time, we need to remember this principle that God's way of bringing his kingdom in, the, in God's way of bringing his kingdom, winning often looks like losing. And what that means for us is that we must look at our circumstances from the perspective of faith in God's word rather than <clears throat> from the perspective of how things appear to be on the surface. So how is Satan bound at the present time so that he might not deceive the nations any longer? The starting point for answering that question is uh, are a number of 
verses in the New Testament that describe how when Jesus was on earth, he was winning victories over Satan, victories which curtailed Satan's activities. So Jesus casting out demons was Jesus waging war on Satan and his demons. By casting demons out of people who had been possessed, Jesus was exercising his power and authority over the demonic realm. And that was the beginning, the foreshadowing, the first steps of a much larger victory that Jesus was working towards. In Matthew 12, 22 through 29, Jesus is being accused by the Pharisees of casting out demons by satanic power. <clears throat> and his answer is given in verses 28 and 29, where he says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. So here Jesus uses language of binding in connection with his ministry of exorcism. So Jesus was in the process of binding Satan through his ministry on earth. The initial step of doing that was casting out demons who had possessed people. But that was a foreshadowing of Jesus' entire mission. The next important verse for this theme is Luke 10, where Jesus sends out 72 of his followers to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And then when they return, they tell Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This refers to some kind of loss of power and influence on Satan's part. In explaining this verse, the ESV Study Bible writes, Jesus indicates that Satan's authority and power over people has been decisively broken. What this means, whatever this means exactly, it's clear that there is connection between the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom and Satan losing power and authority over people. The next important verse is for the idea of Satan being bound through Jesus' ministry on earth is John 12, 31 and 32, which quotes Jesus just before his crucifixion. And Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And if I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So the ruler of this world, who is Satan, is cast out in some sense by the death of Jesus. And the result of that is that Jesus will draw all people to himself. So what we have again is this connection between Jesus' mission, Satan somehow being curtailed in his power and influence, and Jesus drawing people to himself. 
And in the, in the light of these verses that speak in various ways of Satan losing power and influence as a result of Jesus' activities on the earth and the spread of the gospel, consider then the Great Commission in Matthew's gospel where Jesus asserts all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. These verses do not mention uh, <clears throat> Satan specifically, but in, in light of the way that the Gospels show that preaching of the Gospel goes hand in hand with Satan losing power, the Great Commission fits perfectly with that picture. Because of Jesus' work on earth, including his death and his resurrection, he's given all authority in heaven and on earth. And on the basis of that, the church is sent into all the world with the gospel. The coming of the kingdom of God is all about God reestablishing his authority over his creation. The one who has usurped his authority, of course, is Satan. Jesus even refers to him in, Luke 12, in John 12 as the ruler of this world. But Jesus is in the process of reestablishing God's authority over this world, which means taking away Satan's authority. And the preaching of the gospel throughout the world is a direct result of what Jesus accomplished with his earthly ministry, especially his death and his resurrection. Now relate all that to Revelation 21 through 3, where Satan is bound a thousand years, and the result of that binding is that he might not deceive the nations any longer. This fits perfectly with what we've been saying about Jesus' defeat of Satan in the Gospels and the resulting preaching of the gospel throughout the world. The binding of Satan in Revelation 20 is not that he, he can't do anything. That, that kind of binding will come. But it now, <clears throat> it has to do with him not being able to deceive the nations any longer. Before Jesus came to earth, Satan was able to deceive the nations in a way that he is no longer able to do. The gospel then, before the time of Christ, was restricted to Israel. And even in Israel, the number of those who were truly saved by it was very, very small. That has changed dramatically since Jesus has ascended into heaven and poured out his spirit upon the church. The gospel has gone out into all the world. The church has grown in numbers through the centuries. Of course, there have been setbacks, and sometimes the true church has been very small in certain places, but it has gradually spread throughout the world, and it continues to do so. So Satan is still able to do a lot. He is bound. He's not yet out of commission. He's still active. He still has a great deal of influence, but he has not been able to stop the church from surviving and from gradually spreading all around the world. There are a lot of professing Christians in the world. Not all of them are truly saved people, but many of them are, and the gospel is still going out. People are being saved, 
Every person who is saved is one more who has been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the Son of God. And all this is happening because of what we read in our text. Satan is bound during this period, symbolized by a thousand years. That binding is not that he is totally kept from doing harm, but he is kept from deceiving the nations. And the direct result of that is that the gospel is being proclaimed all around the world. People are being saved. The church of Christ continues to exist and to grow. Before Jesus bound Satan by winning the victory over him during his earthly mission, Satan had a power to deceive the nations that he no longer has. Before Jesus came to earth, even in Israel, there was only a small remnant of true believers. And outside of Israel, Satan had almost complete control. Not in any ultimate sense, of course, for God never stopped being the only true God who reigns over all. But Satan did have a lot of power over the human race by God's permission. And so he was able to deceive the nations so that only a tiny fraction of humanity was, rather, so all but a tiny fraction of humanity was under his cruel authority. He still has a lot of power now, but he does not have the same power that he once had. So this is an important text for missions. This is really a missions text. This is a text of encouragement for the work of the church and preaching the gospel to the world and seeking to fulfill the command of Christ to make disciples of all the nations. We are living in the period of time in the history of the world that God in Christ has set aside for the nations to be reached with the gospel. And by binding Satan so that he might no longer deceive the nations, Jesus has created the spiritual conditions for the gospel to go forth and for many people from all nations to be brought to salvation. Satan still has power, that's clear enough. But what is remarkable from this passage is that he is specifically restrained from keeping the gospel from being spread throughout the world and from delivering people from his kingdom. Clearly that does not mean that he is kept from putting up any opposition. He still opposes the gospel, but he's being restrained by the comprehensive authority of Jesus from keeping the gospel from advancing throughout the world according to the will and plan of God. So we're not to expect Satan. We're not expect this to look like Satan is powerless and the gospel sweeping effortlessly around the world. The book of Revelation makes it clear that the church will suffer and it makes it clear how their enemies will often seem to have the upper hand, and yet through it all, temptations, persecution, martyrdom, the gospel advances, sometimes dramatically, 
sometimes just a conversion here and there. Jesus is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The kingdom of God, said Jesus in Luke thirteen twenty one, is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. That's what's going on at the present time. There has been a fundamental change in what Satan is able to do after the victory that Jesus has won by his life, death, and resurrection. Before the time of Christ, he was not bound. He was not restrained from deceiving the nations. And so other than the tiny light of God in the nation of Israel, the whole world was in satanic darkness. But that has changed with the victory of Jesus. So that Satan is now bound so that he is no longer able to deceive the nations as he once did. And through all this time, the gospel has been at work in the world like yeast in a lump of dough, and more and more it is spreading through the whole dough. The existence and the growth of the church through the centuries happened because of this binding of Satan that Revelation 20 is describing. The existence and growth of the church in our time is happening because Christ has bound Satan a thousand years so that he may no longer deceive the nations. From one perspective, it does not look very glorious when you think of the weakness of the church in the West and all of the various issues of the church all around the world. And yet remember... The way that God loves to hide victory in apparent defeat and how God chooses the foolish in the world to shame the wise and the weak in the world to shame the strong. Think of how the cross looked like a defeat and ended up being the greatest victory of all. So let's participate and be encouraged with enthusiasm in this great call of the church to make disciples of in this situation that Jesus Christ has provided for the church to make disciples of all the nation. He's bound Satan so that Satan may not deceive the nations any longer so that that by the power of the gospel, people may be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into his kingdom. Think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The harvest is plentiful because Satan is bound. And may this picture of Satan being bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer encourage us to be excited to do whatever God is calling us to do to be part of what the church is doing to fulfill the Great Commission. There's the witness of our everyday lives in our neighborhoods and our workplaces. There's the support of the work of the presbytery and missions and church planting. There's the 
location of our new church building, that which we are being called to use as a basis for bringing the gospel to that community. They're the organizations that we support and other organizations by which believers work together to make disciples of the nations. And there is the ministry of prayer, personal prayer, but also corporate prayer, our prayer meetings, which are a vital part of the church's fulfillment of the Great Commission. These three verses that have been the focus of so much controversy are a profound encouragement for us in the mission of making disciples of the nation. Satan has been bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, so that the church may go into the world and make disciples of those nations. And may that picture, that symbol of Satan being bound in this way, and for this purpose, may that be impressed and burned into our memories so that we may always think of it as a step in Jesus' victory to make possible the mission of the church, to make disciples of the nations. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you for the wonderful way in which your word gives us a vision for what you are doing in this world and how we participate in that. We thank you for this wonderful few verses that speak about Satan being bound for a thousand years and uh, how the other verses that we looked at in, in the Gospels, especially how they shed light on what that being bound means. And we thank you for the glorious encouragement that that is when we see the Great Commission in the light of that. Jesus, having asserted that God the Father had given him authority over all the nations, and at the same time Satan being bound so that he may not deceive the nations, and Jesus telling the church, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Lord, help us to be excited about that mission. Help us to be excited about the possibilities because of the spiritual realities that your word describes that we can only see by faith. Encourage us, we pray. Help us to be fruitful in your service as individuals and as a congregation. We pray for your entire church and all that it is doing. And indeed, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.